This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right, let's get you going because we've got some serious stories also going on uh, as we watch that hurricane bearing down, uh, certainly on uh, the Gulf right now. So let's start things off with a check on the trading day and Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much indeed. Category four hurricane now. We've got the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ at or near best level of the day. In fact, we are looking at records four in a row now for the S&P and NASDAQ. Let's get right to the numbers. S&P up 30. That is a gain of nine-tenths of one percent. The Dow is up 34 points now, higher by one-tenth of 1%. NASDAQ is up 187 points, up 1.6%. Year-to-date column on the Bloomberg up 29.9%. 10-year yield 0.68%. Gold is up 1%, 1947 the ounce. And West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil now up 3 tenths of 1%, 43.48 a barrel. I'm Charlie Pellet. That is a Bloomberg Business Flash. All right, Charlie, thanks so much. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This portion brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. Be the independent advisor you've always wanted to be with all the support you need to get there. Visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. And we got to set the Business Week agenda, Carol, because you mentioned that market Whoa. I mean, it is something to behold, given all the headlines you run down the most red, as we often do, and you just think, oh, uh, okay, so stocks are up. Cool. All right. Great. Um, so <laughs> let's so check easy. in. Yeah. Let's check in with our team if we can. We've got them assembled in the great state of New Jersey. Talk about Gina Martin-Adams, chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone from New Jersey. Also there, Dave Wilson, stocks editor, author of the chart and stock of the day. So Gina, help us understand this market. And maybe it's just these tech stocks, but I have to think it's more than that with this drive higher. I, you know, I think it's more confirmation that monetary policy is going to re- remain extremely accommodative for a very long period of time. I mean, frankly, that's been the driver, f- from my perspective, that's been the driver since March, <laughs> and it really hasn't changed. You get a little bit of um, greater optimism that we probably will experience economic recovery, which will lead to bigger earnings recovery into 2011. On top of that, confidence of monetary policy remaining extremely accommodative, and there's nowhere else to go but stocks. You've got to be willing to take a little bit of risk, uh, utilize the liquidity to put that money to work when rates are at zero, Um, and so stocks are kind of the sweet spot, and I think that the market is reflecting that. You know, the other thing I think is that this idea that this is a one-sided, one-trade market in favor of FANGs is completely overstated. If you actually look at the data... 75% of stocks in the S&P 500 are trading above their 50-day moving average. Wow. Wait, 50% say th- of stocks are trading above their 200-day moving average. So it's so, broad. Yeah, the big guys are big, and they keep getting yeah. bigger. But there's a decent amount of breadth here. 
That's, yeah. I think, a really, 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 really good point. And I also go back to what you said. How many reallys was that? Well, because Gina deserves a lot of reallys. <laughs> but the point is also, you know, we're going to talk about Jay Powell and the upcoming Jackson Hole meeting. I mean, the expectations are that, the you know, we're going to have zero rates for a long time. So, Gina, people are going to increasingly be looking for yield. And that is going to take you off into the stock market. Yeah, you've got to find it somewhere. And with spreads tight, with yields across the Treasury curve incredibly low, with even emerging market debt has rallied, there's just not a lot of opportunity um, for places to put your cash. But nonetheless, you don't want to put it in 0% earning you know, money market funds. So there, there definitely is an incentive to take on some degree of risk. Now, I would not go so far as to say that there's evident a tremendous risk tolerance out there. Right. If there were, then we would see not necessarily the big defensive tech stocks and healthcare stocks yeah. and communication stocks leading to the extent that they are. We would see some of the value stocks starting to really show some leadership. So we haven't even seen that in, in great scale. That could be what's next to drive us even higher if we can get some economic right. momentum while the Fed's so easy. All right, Dave Wilson, what's on your mind today? What are you seeing that's new and interesting, either with specific names or things that are driving the market that may not be obvious to mere mortals like us? Well, you know, we've already brought up the FANG stocks. And, boy, you, you see three out of the four among the day's best performers in the S&P 500. You know, there's Facebook, which is up almost 7%. Even though they're talking about how changes to Apple's operating system for iPhones and iPads are going to hurt their uh, advertising network. And, of course, that's where the revenue comes from at Facebook. You know, you've got uh, Amazon.com up about 3%. Another day, another adventure for that online retailer, or so it seems. And then, you know, you have Netflix, and their name is being tossed about as a uh, potential bidder uh, for TikTok. Now, whether that happens or not, who the heck knows? Uh, It looks like uh, they've kind of backed away from that possibility. And Netflix is up 10.5%. And they all kind of take a backseat to Salesforce.com today, which, you know, if it were next week and the company was in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it would be given a serious lift to the Dow. It's up more than 25% in the wake of its earnings. Yeah, that's a big bit. You know, it was interesting to talk to Nico Grant about Salesforce's move into the Dow. And I was like, so how big of a deal is this? He's like, this is a huge deal. This is a massive deal in part about what it says about the company, but in part about what it says about the space that they're playing in, who they're replacing, like the power of that company and how big it's gotten and how influential it's gotten over time. All right, Dave Wilson, quick tease for the chart of the day. Oh, you know, look at what's going on with the S&P 500. You think it's all about the mega cap companies, you know, the fangs. We've already talked about them. That group has years of weakness to overcome, and I'll show that with the chart. All right. Thank you both so much. Dave Wilson, we'll catch up with you a little bit later. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much That stat from Gina was so important because we keep talking about it's all in the tech, it's all in the tech, but we need to think about what else it's in. I might say it's really, 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 really important. You would just because I do. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. You know, we've been talking a bit about vaccines, but we also know that testing is huge. It's huge, especially as we think about getting back to something resembling normal life, whatever this next normal is going to be. We're lucky to have with us Ali Davar. Excuse me. Ali, am I pronouncing your name right? That's great. Yeah, it's perfect. Thank you. 
Good. Uh, co-founder of Atlas ID, joining us on the phone from Vancouver. So, Ali, tell us exactly about what you're doing because rapid testing and getting tested in in all aspects so important right now. Yeah, I mean, testing is a broad category, and rapid testing is part of it. Um, what we're doing right now is we're trying to uh, help employers essentially get connected with testing capacity and actually do uh, virtual health checks on employees that need to come back to work. That includes like coordinating testing and also uh, helping facilitate that they get uh, delivery times, turnaround times, such that the testing is useful. So tell us about your role in all of this, because I think this is such a big part of it. I can't tell you how many times where somebody's like, yeah, I've got to get a test, but this place tells me it's going to take, you know, two weeks. How useful is that? This place is going to take me a couple of days. Tell me a little bit about your role in all of this, because you guys are not in the testing business, but you are helping others, other companies, other employers facilitate testing, which we know is so crucial to where we are right now and really trying to help us all get back to maybe normal, maybe get back to work, get back to some things, get back to school and and all of those things. So what exactly do you guys do? Yeah, um, essentially we're facilitating uh, these smaller and medium-sized businesses that need to get employees back to work to do testing. So that's a real coordination challenge. That's a real facilitation challenge and making sure that they get access to the laboratories out there that have the capacity um, to test. So really, you know, the big uh, labs are really uh, caught up on public testing and the capacity is already sort of at its limit there. But there's these uh, smaller labs that have capacity and will come online um, if they have visibility and are able, able to connect to the employer. So it's a, a bit of a matching problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with, we're, we're the coordinator in between, and we're making sure uh, that uh, this kind of this testing gets to the employers that need it. And so tell us about the demand from employers, because I know we're looking at a fall where people are, at least in New York City and certainly elsewhere, trying to get people back in. How much do you worry about demand versus supply, both supply of tests, but also supply of of essentially evaluating those tests? Yeah, we're not in the evaluation business. We let the FDA do that. So any. Sorry, I mean not the value. I mean just basically like the the processing of tests. That's what I mean. Sorry, I missed. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, demand is gonna spike. I think uh, on all fronts because uh, we're approaching the 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 influenza season. Uh, But at the same time, we're seeing employers get visibility into the consequences of not testing. So they're looking across at other employers. You know, seeing what happens when an outbreak happens. And that means shutting down the business, the liability around that, and just the nature of this disease is, you know, it's, you can be asymptomatic and spread. So that, that, that happens in about 50% of cases. And the workplace is one of those places where you, you're really, you're, you're liable to have a real outbreak. So it, it, it's a real problem. So how much has your business changed because of the virus? Well, we've developed a deep technology and we've been working on it for a while. Uh, what we've done is essentially utilize this technology to serve as this platform so the data is more private and secure and also facilitates this matching to happen. So a lot of these smaller labs don't really have the technology to deliver the credential, the test results, and eventually the vaccine in a way that employers might want to utilize it. 
So that means like, so we have film and TV customers that need to set up checkpoints at zones. Right. We have manufacturers that need to display this credential uh, of testing or that as vaccine as they may come to uh, partners on site. There's all these use cases for employers to use this that these labs are really not set up to meet. They, they send an email, for instance, right? Or, or they send a spreadsheet. And that's just not, that's not, that's not the nature of this problem. So we really are facilitating them getting connected and delivering that data in a way that's useful for employers. Yeah, Ali, this actually feeds into something, Jason, I've had lots of conversations. I mean, this whole idea of testing and tracing, but just testing, you know, and you think about the schools and colleges that we've talked to, it's about doing multiple tests, you know, or testing several times a day or several times a week to make sure, you know, communities are safe. Ali, thank you so much for checking in with us and letting us know what you guys are up to. He's the co-founder of Atlas ID, Ali Devar. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Let's get right to this story. Scott DeVoe, I was so fortunate to just ride along with him. Sort of like I ride along with you, Carol, you know, and just enjoy the good work that's being done. I did the same with Scott DeVoe this week. Deals reporter so much more for Bloomberg. Answering the question so many had, Scott, about where Mark Carney was going to end up. Brookfield winning the sweepstakes. This is a big hire. Yeah, I think he's probably the most coveted guy that was out there, you know, um, in the early part of the year, at least for business and politics. Um, There's been plenty of rumors swirling around, um, you know, in particular after our colleagues broke that uh, he was he was doing an informal role with the prime minister of Canada, you know, helping with the plan to recover from COVID. Um, People started thinking that maybe he would um, replace the outgoing finance minister. But obviously that did not take place. I mean, this is, so what does this do for him? What does this do um, for the private equity firm Brookfield? So I guess the big thing will be that he is going to lead a new initiative to basically build a new silo for Brookfield that will do ESG investing. So focusing on environmental, social, and governance issues. Um, And, you know, Brookfield has basically four silos right now in renewable energy, infrastructure, property, and they have a private equity arm. So the idea would be to, he's going to oversee this uh, new vertical for Brookfield. um, And they think it's going to be, you know, as big as any of the other verticals, which, you know, range from 50 billion to 86 billion, I believe, in assets under management. Um, And so more importantly, I think um, what, Mark told us, uh, Jason and I, yesterday was that um, he was, uh, you know, looking for something where he could marry some of his passions. Um, you know, he's been a big climate change, um, you know, um, proponent and also for um, businesses uh, that aren't, you know, getting on this climate change initi- initiative he's been, you know, quite critical of. So he'll be able to do both. Yeah, I mean, Scott, what struck me is you and I were catching up with Mark Carney and Bruce Flatt, the CEO of Brookfield, yesterday, and sort of understanding what was behind all this really was the size of the opportunity. And one of the things that you and I and and Carol have all learned in watching this business over the past few years is that the scale and the ability to do really big things matters. And that's what's ultimately, and I was glad that you really pushed this to the fore in the story too, that is what 
has made Brookfield so competitive and now really only second to Blackstone when it comes to the world of alternative assets. Big investors are looking for investors who can put lots of money to work, and that doesn't exist in this space right now when it comes to ESG. Yeah, I agree. I think that was one of the things that jumped out at me. I think Bruce Flatt said something along the lines of, you know, in terms of the kind of funds that they're thinking of raising, there's only been about 10 or 15 billion raised globally at, at, uh, for similar funds, and he thinks it's hundreds of billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines looking for something like this. Yeah. yeah. I do wonder if, like, we're at, you know, a turning point. Scott, Jason and I have talked about this, but when it comes to ESG, I do feel like all of a sudden, you know, some of these bigger players, these alt-asset type investors, too, are just looking at ESG in a very different way and really kind of, like, ESG has grown up. Yeah, I think that's probably true because if you think about, um, you know, the constituents of, you know, the pension funds and, um, you know, even, you know, even some of the big asset managers, um, you think about who's who's putting their money into these kind of um, uh, funds that Brookfield would be raising. And these people are people that have been, you know, pounding the pavement about, you know, needing to fix social issues, environmental issues. And they want to put their money where they can trust um, that they'll, you know, they'll be getting a good return, but they'll also be doing good generally for, yeah. you know, the broader society. Well, and there's implications if you don't now, whether it's legal or it's the impact. Like, you you know, you can cost your company a lot of money by not um, falling in line with this stuff. So cool stuff, you guys. Good to work with you on this one. Scott DeVoe, deals reporter for Bloomberg. Uh, Breaking the news that Mark Carney is going to Brookfield. I have to say, Carol, I I have to think that Steve Schwartz and Henry Kravitz and others are like, oh, Brookfield. (laughs) They got him. Exactly. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser. Well, this next story takes us to Mexico, but by way of London, because that's where we find one of the reporters involved in this, Cam Simpson, news projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg. We find him in London, along with, in Massachusetts, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, all about a story The U.S. drug crisis is made in Mexico with American raw materials. Joel, I have to say, this story is really, I I don't know what any other way to say it, it's really disturbing. Super disturbing. And tons of credit to Cam for uh, really sticking through this. Uh, He's been working on it for a long time, which I'm sure he can tell us all about. But, you know, the main thing here is, you know, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and we've just done vaccine issues. And that's a story that, you know, we're I think is is here and now. But let's not forget that there's this unfolding epidemic that's been going on for more than a decade now involving heroin and meth. And the and the kind of the most salacious thing that Cam's discovered in his reporting is that U.S. companies, um, one of which is publicly traded, uh, are actually making the raw ingredients that Mexican cartels are exploiting in Mexico. You can't they can't obviously make them in the U.S., but they can make them. Uh, their subsidiaries can make them in Mexico. That's where they've been raided, stolen. They're in jugs. They can actually just be bought over the counter even. And those are um, fueling basically this ongoing epidemic. Uh, Cam, how did you find out about this story and, and what um, what makes you so frustrated about it? Yeah, thanks, Joel. Um, gosh, well, you know, the, the, the space that I've worked in for the last couple of decades is sort of the blind spots created by globalization and, you know, transnational illicit trade. All, all kinds of things happen 
you know, especially with corporations in these blind spots, whether it's human trafficking or whatever is in your supply chain that, that you don't want to look at. And I think probably about, gosh, it's been probably about eight years ago, I read a, a journal article about the trafficking in this this chemical. So you have all the heroin that's ever been made in the world has been made with a single chemical. It's required to make heroin. It's called acetic anhydride. When it was initially discovered in 1874 by an English chemist, he did it with this chemical called acetic anhydride. And so it's it's for the last 20 years been the most heavily regulated product you can imagine in international trade under international drug laws pushed by the U.S. all over the world. It's incredibly restricted. And, you know, I read about in Afghanistan, it's completely illegal. It's a crime to even have a leader of this chemical because there's no legitimate use for it in the country. And it's all based on smuggling the entire market there. And then, you know, come about 2017, when I realized from my post here in London, where I do work on international stories, that that there was this horrible heroin crisis in the U.S. that had really kind of moved in on the prescription opioid epidemic after mm. prescription opioids were made harder to get, you know, through reformulation. There's been almost a one-to-one replacement in terms of overdose deaths from heroin. So the Mexican cartels really moved in quickly and quite silently. I don't think people realized how much their production was growing, you know, four or five-fold, along with a four or five-fold increase in overdose deaths over just, you know, a very few years. And it kind of clicked in my head that I'd studied this issue a little bit in the past, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder how they're getting all the acetic anhydride that they need to make that heroin. And it turns out it was completely, effectively, totally unregulated in Mexico. And the market there, the supply is totally and completely dominated by U.S. companies. As Joel said, they operate through subsidiaries in Mexico, so they're effectively insulated from the international drug laws and really tough U.S. drug laws that deal with these same chemicals that have been around for, you know, for three decades and and no oversight, obviously, um, from U.S. officials. So it's kind of created this weird, surreal free market in Mexico that's that's fueling the entire U.S. epidemic in heroin and meth. Uh, in this chemical and a pretty lax environment in others that are even, you know, quite strictly controlled, at least by Mexican standards. Um, right. So that was really that was really the base of it. Cam, what's the role of tobacco companies in all of this? Uh, it's really interesting that you asked that, Carol. So I think probably, um, you know, by far the the biggest use of this chemical acetic anhydride throughout history has to been make has been to make cigarette filters and the companies that dominate the market globally and also dominate the industrial market for it in Mexico you know their largest source of revenues over the years and they're they're all publicly listed actually Selenese and Eastman their largest source of revenue uh, by far and away has been making cigarette filters so they have they have a vertically integrated supply chain they make the chemical they use it to make filters and then they sell excess in the market to to other customers for other uses and so i think in the very beginning when the us the cia made a discovery uh, in 1987 that was really embarrassing to the chemical industry they found that 95% of the chemicals that were making colombian cocaine cocaine from latin america were exported there by us companies and these companies had been on an honor system before that, and then Congress was kind of like, that, 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 we've had enough of this. And they amended the drug law to really clamp down on this trade. And But, you know, there's always from the beginning under the U.S. law been this really light-touch regulation of acetic anhydride that I think just sort of survived as a default in Mexico 
long after, you know, the laws just about everywhere else changed, the international drug laws, again, were updated in 2001. And this was made the top priority to, to really control this chemical. And Mexico just, you know, let it go until, until I think we, the rule was published on Christmas Eve in 2018. Wow. And even since then, Nuts. it's still unbelievably easy to get. You know, we bought there's this weird retail market in Mexico where you can buy this chemical in 18-liter jugs. That's amazing. And it's dominated, it's dominated by a U.S. company called Avantor, which was the second largest IPO on Wall Street last year. And they've got about a $12.3 billion market cap. And they sell thousands of these jugs uh, in, in Mexico. And mm. it's just it's small enough to load into the trunk of a car, but it's big enough to make really lucrative quantities of illegal drugs, especially heroin. We found it in, in crime scene photos that we got from authorities at heroin labs. And each one of these jugs can make about 90,000 hits of heroin, pure pure white heroin. Jesus. Wow. He, I, I mean, we bought it over the counter. We, we had it delivered to us on Mercado Libre, which is like the um, yeah. kind of the Amazon of Latin America. All the retailers, all the distributors said it was unbelievably easy to get. It's just this crazy wide open market. And, and again, yeah. I guess what was shocking is that it was really, it's a market really dominated by U.S. companies. Right. Yeah, no, that really is, a, that clearly is a twist. All right, Cam Simpson, thank you so much. Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from London. A terrific piece yeah. of journalism. U.S. drug crisis is made in Mexico with American raw materials. That story will be featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. You can read it now on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Carol? Well, in this week's Bloomberg Green segment, Bloomberg News Labor reporter Josh Idelson takes us deep into the U.S. mining world and the comeback that never was and the workers that have just been caught in all of this. Uh, Josh, joining us uh, on um, the phone from San Francisco. So, Josh, good to have you here with us. I feel like we all know the coal industry is a dying one, and yet there are still workers in it, um, but it's not easy for them. And I feel like they keep getting made promises uh, from various individuals, and then they're just disappointed over and over again. And they've got to kind of rework themselves. Yes. Part of why we did this story is Black Jewel became international news. Harlan County, the iconic U.S county came back into the headlines a year ago when miners physically blocked tracks to prevent their bankrupt company from moving coal out that they said they had mined without getting paid for it. So the question for this feature was, well, what happened after that? Because that protest united the miners, but that bankruptcy ultimately dispersed them. It dispersed some people out of the county and it dispersed other people out of the coal industry into things like trucking or meat packing or getting into nursing. I talked to a man who said the machismo factor would have prevented him in the past from moving from mining to care work, but he spent a bunch of time around male ICU nurses when his baby was in the ICU and it shifted his perspective and now he sees nursing as a more promising way be able to care for his family than clinging on to mining. And so what 
happens when there is a green element that that comes into this? How does that play in, Josh, in terms of potentially some new opportunities? Because that has itself long been held out or maybe of late been held out as as a promise of sorts or as maybe a way forward here. Tell us about that. That's right. There are voices saying this is not something that one person or one county can solve. In fact, it's a societal responsibility and what's needed to create equally or better jobs is massive investment and the federal government should be doing it. And so people advocate for trillions in spending to do things like provide benefit and pay parity, create government jobs that people can take over, invest in and support infrastructure, change federal procurement to incentivize placing work in some of these former coal counties. There's plenty of work that needs to be done in America. There's work remediating environmental damage from coal. There are solar panels to be installed. There are kids and elderly people to be cared for. And so it is in part a question of will, of whether the government will step in to make the decline of this industry that has had tremendous social costs not itself be something socially devastating for a bunch of people. Right, because it's not people who don't want to work. I mean, they're trying to reinvent themselves, but it's not so easy. And you do wonder about what the government could do or their responsibility to help in this situation, because ultimately, you know, people who have jobs, people who are working, first of all, it's good for them and they can support themselves and their families, but it's also, and good certainly for their mental health, but it's also good for our overall economy, bottom line. One of the things that was striking in reporting this story was talking to the judge executive, the head elected official of the county, who talked about the surveys that they've done that these miners who in some cases had the opportunity to make $100,000 a year with overtime in the mine, Mm. in surveys said they would accept jobs for as little as $17 an hour. And yet when he's had companies come visit about building in the county, one of them he realized it wasn't going to work because the the way he put it is they only have so much flat land and an $8 an hour job is not something that's going to improve people's fortunes there. Right. All right. Well, it's a nice piece of reporting. Uh, Stark in many ways as uh, all of the disruption continues to hit the coal industry and green. It could be a way out, but it is complicated in many ways. Josh Idelson, thank you so much. Nice to catch up with you. Labor reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from San Francisco. You can read more stories on climate news, science, and the environment at Bloomberg.com slash green. Carol. What's really interesting about this story is, right, we talk about, we see the headlines, and it's, we just all feel so removed from it. But what Josh does so well, um, and this story in particular, like, takes us there to understand the struggles of these individuals who've been in an industry for a long time. It's like, Jason, if, you know, we as journalists, and certainly there's other things we can do, but all of a sudden it was just a, I mean, a dying industry, (laughs) dare I say. But you know what I mean. And then it's like, well, okay, I've got to, you know, figure my way through. I mean, it's, it's. We can't just keep leaving people behind. Right. I'm driving in my car. 
I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. Let's check in in Los Angeles with Charlie Rogers, Regional Chief Investment Officer for Abbott Downing. That, of course, is a division of Wells Fargo Asset Management. Charlie, really nice to have you here with Carol and myself. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So, you know, it's interesting. We are looking at a market that continues to defy gravity when it comes to the equity market. You know, we see a lot of enthusiasm when there is a good vaccine headline or when there's some indication of an economic recovery. I have to ask you, like, how do you read this market right now? What's the thing that maybe folks are missing or that's going underappreciated? Yeah. You know, one, one of the things that we're obviously focused on is the, the upcoming presidential election. We're, we're just about three months out. You know, so far, the markets are, are taking that in stride. You know, as I looked uh, this morning, you know, 538 uh, website has Biden, you know, with an 8.4% 8, 8. Uh, lead, no, no noticeable bounce coming out of the virtual election. So, you know, I think for the first time uh, of late, we're, we're starting to hear some questions around, uh, you know, what are the policy uh, impact of a potential uh, regime change? And, and uh, you know, here in California, there's, a, there's talk about a wealth tax and, and, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, our view is the elections, which have not come front and center uh, where they normally would at this point, we're going to start to hear more and more about that. And the focus is going to be on, you know, policy impacts, how much of those are considered, you know, less growth friendly, and, and what is really the reaction, uh, you know, going forward with, with the markets. But, but so far, the, the focus has been on, you know, improving economic highlights. Uh, you know, COVID numbers are, are trending down again, and, and uh, you know, Salesforce had a great number today, and, and we, we hit new, new highs again. Right. They're letting go of workers, too, though. And I do wonder, you know, what the economy looks like um, for the rest of the year going into 2021 when there's pressure still on companies, you know, to maybe cut back because there isn't demand, you know, out there because we're not quite through the virus yet. Yeah. I mean, I think that the challenge there is, you know, what what number do you look at? Do you look at the, you know, the uh, where we started the year on, on employment and GDP and, and where we are now and, and, and how far we're down. Or what I think the market is focused on is, is the trends uh, improvement there. So whether that be employment, uh, you, know, you saw the housing number last week was up 20 plus percent. Uh, I think the market is, is looking forward and likes you know, the fact that we've gotten really better data than expected. So in some ways, that's hard to believe uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And we can all point to sectors like uh, hospitality, where, where there, you know, there's real challenges ahead, areas in real estate, et cetera. But I think the market is focused on you know, the fact that 
data has been better on, on the margin, and, and as long as that trend continues, we, we, we kind of supports uh, the highs that we've been hitting almost but, on a daily basis. But, Charlie, what does it mean when a company like Salesforce, as you mentioned, and we talked about certainly yesterday after they reported uh, after the closing bell, that they have a banner quarter, and yet they're cutting about 1,000 jobs, at least according to our Nico Grant uh, and according to those people familiar. So when a company's still doing great and cutting workers, you know, what does that say maybe about the outlook and potentially what it will mean, you know, ultimately for the economy and then investments, companies? Yeah, I, I think, look, those, those jobs are going to have to be picked up somewhere else. I would say a counterpoint to that, if, if you saw the Amazon quarter, I believe if I have the number uh, correctly, they hired something like 175,000 workers in the second quarter, which is just a staggering number. So there's clearly been winners uh, coming out of pandemic. It's easy to kind of look at the tech sector, Salesforce, Amazon being two big examples. But uh, for each uh, you know cut that we've seen, you know, like Salesforce, there there has been some you know positive corporate uh, news like Amazon, you know, where where they're aggressively adding adding workers and. And as long as those kind of trends uh, continue and those kind of roll up into the, uh, you know, frankly, better employment numbers than, than expected, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, that continued, continued uptrend. And, and, you know, we gotta, we got to uh, you know, get, get employment back to more normalized uh, numbers. And, and, you know, it's our expectation in, in the 21 that, that, that we'll start to see those, those jobs come back. So, Charlie, we were talking earlier in our show about a, a story that I had a hand in, which was uh, about how Mark Carney, the former Bank of England, former Bank of Canada uh, chief, is headed over to Brookfield to head a whole new investment area for them around ESG. It'll be a mix, maybe a public and private type investments. But I do wonder, as we think about these private capital juggernauts like a Brookfield or a Blackstone, KKR, Carlisle, and others, are those opportunities for, for clients, sort of the broader private market, which has only gotten bigger and bigger here? Yeah, actually, uh, I, I think that's right along the lines of what we're thinking. Uh, you know, our discussion up until now is about the public markets and the, and the new equity side uh, highs we're hitting. You know, we actually think it's a it's a great time to be looking at the private markets, and you mentioned some of the category leaders there. So, you know, one of the one of the deals that we're looking at now is is a private debt opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, discount for small and mid mid companies, which really don't have access to the debt markets the way some of the bigger companies do. You know, cash flow on that I think is north of six percent. You're buying bonds at you know eighty percent, eighty cents on the dollar. So. Cash flow plus upside in a zero interest rate environment. I think that's an extremely good risk reward. And and the names you mentioned, KKR, uh, Apollo, uh, some of the big debt uh, companies should should benefit you know from that. So I, yeah. I do think you're going to start to see those trends uh, playing forward. And and you know private deals they they held up better on the downside in March and April and. And, and public markets have come roaring back, but but uh, you know going forward, we think you know this is a, a great time to be looking at you know those private investments. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Aries is another name I know we talk about a lot uh, when it comes sure. to the private credit and the private debt market. Uh, 
headquartered out near you. All right, Charlie Rogers, thanks so much. Regional Chief Investment Officer for Abbott Downing. He joined us on the phone from Los Angeles. Carol, you see how it was able to sort of slide into my story? It's very subtle. Not so subtle. Uh, no. no. No, well you don't done. think so? Well done. Well done. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.